0: Well, good evening. My name is Joel, and I get to serve as the community pastor here at Vista. I oversee all of our small groups and also our men's ministry, among other things. And tonight, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to serve as a guide um, as we move through Ash Wednesday. Austin was talking a little bit about the history of Ash Wednesday. As far as uh, I can tell, Ash Wednesday, I think, began as a a season of preparation for those who were going to be baptized leading up to Easter. And at some point, it seemed wise by decision makers to make it a time for everyone to prepare for Easter. A couple of the motifs or themes of the ashes and the dust specifically, and there are um, plenty of these in the scripture, but a couple that I wanted to draw your attention to. This is by no means exhausted. But Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, when he's having a conversation with Yahweh about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's asking God to spare the people. One of the things that Abraham says in Genesis chapter 18, he says to God, who am I but dust and ashes? And he's referring to his own frailty and mortality as we've been alluding to tonight. That's one of the things that these ashes that we're going to receive, that's one of the things that they mean. Some of you may remember the story in Esther when... Uh, a man named Haman was plotting against all of the Jews. And he uh, convinced the king to pronounce an edict that all of the Jewish people would be killed. And as that message of the king's edict, that the Jews were going to be killed, made its way to the Jewish people, Esther chapter four, verse three says this. It says, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them laid in sackcloth and ashes. Another thing that these ashes represent is sadness and mourning in our lives. Um, a couple more. You may remember um, Jeremiah in Lamentations when he is writing uh, so many terrible and sad things as he's witnessing the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 16, this is what the author of Lamentations, perhaps Jeremiah, said. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. Another way of saying that might be I'm eating the dust. And he has made me cower in ashes. And in Lamentation, the theme here related to dust and ashes is about the judgment of God as his judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. And so that's a theme of Ash Wednesday. And then lastly, um, and again, this is not meant to be exhaustive, just to give you some context for some of the themes that we're interacting with tonight. The last one that I was thinking of was um, in the story of Jonah. When um, the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh, that unless they repented that judgment was going to come upon the city. In Jonah chapter three, verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And this has to do with the theme of repentance, of hearing the word of the Lord and changing your mind and your direction uh, upon that hearing. And so those are just a few of the themes that we're interacting with tonight. And so um, one of the things that I found, and I don't know if this is true about you, my upbringing uh, was kind of charismatic fundamentalist in East Texas uh, growing up. And then for most of my life has been um, in Baptist circles. And so Ash Wednesday was never a thing in any of those circles. So pretty much 95% of my life, um, yeah, I didn't know what Ash Wednesday was. I didn't participate in it. But one of the things that I have found, I went to actually my first Ash Wednesday service the year before the pandemic, which pandemic brain makes me forget what year that was, I think. And we've obviously had had during the pandemic some break um, from Ash Wednesday services and things of that nature, but that was the first one I went to. And one of the things that I found uh, from my tradition is that some of these themes, uh, frailty, mortality, sadness and mourning, the judgment of God, um, repentance, there was not good context or good times to talk about those in my church setting that I grew up. And so that's one of the things that I've appreciated about Ash Wednesday is it kind of brings these things right to the forefront of our minds. Um, And so Ash Wednesday presents itself as an invitation for you to prepare faithfully for Easter and to interact with some of these themes that we were just referring to. There's a quote that I have uh, from Douglas John Hall, a Canadian theologian who wrote a book called God and Human Suffering. Here's what he said. He said the basic distinction between religion and Christian faith is the propensity of religions to avoid precisely suffering. To have light without darkness, vision without trust and risk, to have hope without an ongoing dialogue with despair, in short, to have Easter without Good Friday. And actually, he's talking about this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique is the willingness of Christianity historically to have an ongoing dialogue with despair, to not settle, to try to have light without darkness, which is not even possible. And certainly, Christianity does not lead us to Easter without Good Friday. But I felt like in the traditions that I grew up in, that was what actually what was happening, that there wasn't an ongoing dialogue with despair, that there was attempts to have um, Christmas without Advent and to have Easter without Good Friday. And again, this is part of what I've really appreciated about Ash Wednesday and the season of preparation of Lent that precedes Easter, And so tonight we have an invitation into the first lines of that dialogue during this season. You have an invitation to begin tonight, if you haven't already, an ongoing dialogue with despair. You have an invitation to make sure that this year, the year of our Lord 2023, that you are not going to have Easter without Good Friday. Amen. And so part of this aversion is not new um, for Christians an attempt to have uh, Easter without Good Friday. Actually, there's, there's several examples. I don't have time for all of them tonight. Um, I chose one in particular, um, a church in Corinth um, that struggled with this very thing. And so I wanted to read, uh, it was hard to choose a text because this is pervasive throughout First and Second Corinthians, this mentality, but I chose uh, First Corinthians chapter 4, and I would love for us to read it together. So if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says this to the church in Corinth, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? And we begin to get a little hint of some of the problem here is there's this arrogance among the Corinthian church that they are boasting about things that they actually received as if they created them or gained them on their own. He continues, verse eight, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become kings. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. And very quickly, this um, talk about having everything that you want or being satiated, uh, having your fill, the idea of being rich. He's not talking um, most likely about material riches. Um, Most of the church in Corinth was probably not materially rich. He's talking about like a spiritual arrogance. And when he says, already you've become kings, um, that phrase can be translated as, you have a posture that you're already reigning. That's where that phrase, you've already become kings, comes from. And so their mentality was, they were already on top. They were reigning. And Paul says, hey, man, I did not get that memo. I actually wish that you guys already were reigning. Because in my situation, I do not find myself reigning in the way that you guys think that you're reigning. And so again, he continues. Listen to what he says. Again, he says, I wish that you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. And then he starts to describe his own situation, which is very far from reigning in the way that they think that they are reigning. Verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, not reigning. As though we were sentenced to death, not reigning. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to mortals, not reigning. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty and we are poorly clothed. And we are beaten and we are homeless and we grow weary from the work of our own hands, not reigning. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We have become like the rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things to this very day, not reigning. Consider the divide between the elitist, triumphalist, posture of the church in Corinth that was living like kings living as if they were already reigning and Paul who says we are like the dregs of the earth there is a wide gap between those two mentalities and Paul is frankly very sarcastically believe it or not he gets a little bit kinder later on in this text so that you don't get the wrong idea but this is definitely like real sarcasm pointing out the arrogance of their posture Fleming Rutledge is a pastor, um, a former pastor, actually. She's retired now. She's in her 80s. She was an Episcopalian pastor, and um, she's an amazing preacher. She's one of the best preachers that I've ever heard. She wrote a book on the crucifixion that she wrote over the course of 20 years, and that book has been one of the most impactful books that I've ever read. And I really love Fleming Rutledge. So I wanted to share something that she said about the posture of the Corinthian church and also give her a shout out because I love her so much. Here's what she said about the church in Corinth. Fleming Rutledge said that the church in Corinth placed themselves either beyond the cross as though they were already raised or above the cross as though suffering was behind them and beneath them rather than in the cross. And this is one of the things Ash Wednesday is welcoming us into is to not have a perspective like the church in Corinth. One of the ways that scholars and commentators describe this kind of mentality, that you are receiving all the fullness of the future kingdom of God in the here and now to an extent that is unhealthy and unrealistic, and it's not fitting for the present time because we have not received all those things yet. One of the ways that scholars and commentators describe that mentality is having an over-realized eschatology. Everything that Paul was pointing about out about their arrogance, their knowledge, their riches, spiritually speaking, their reigning as though the kingdom of God had already been fully consummated. That's known as an overrealized eschatology. And it has dire consequences, actually. And one of the things that Ash Wednesday does as Paul lays out this indictment against the Corinthian church for their mentality, one of the things that he does here is he begins to show some consequences of a mentality like that. And we won't be able to spend a ton of time on these, but I wanted to point out a couple. Actually, Austin uh, did a lot of the heavy lifting on this first one for me. And actually, if, you're in, if you have your Bible, you can just flip to the next page in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Austin referred to this passage in his message on uh, inclusion and judgment. And I believe in that, he referred to the Corinthian church as either a dumpster fire or a clown show or maybe both in different services. But um, that's probably actually putting it mildly. And one of the reasons that we would use such colorful language about a church is because of this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll just look at verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not found even among the pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife. And if you remember, Austin talked about the very close relationship that some dude had with his stepmother. That was inappropriate. And then listen to this. This this might be one of the best Ash Wednesday parts of a verse in the whole Bible, I believe. He says, you are arrogant. Should not you rather have mourned about this? Austin talked about how they, in their arrogance, celebrated sin in Corinth. One of the things, as I think about the last few years uh, in, in my own journey and as I've preached and pastored, is there's been a lot of times, and I wonder if you're the The same way, there's been a lot of times where I felt like the church was celebrating things that should have been mourned. One of the invitations of Ash Wednesday and one of the indictments is to examine ourselves into, and this is not gonna be obvious. If it was obvious, you would not be celebrating it, right? But to examine whether there are things that we celebrate that we should be mourning is one of the invitations of Ash Wednesday. So they had this cozy relationship with sin. And again, I can show you this as well from First uh, John, writing to the church in Ephesus, same thing. Um, they were saying, we don't have any sin, what's sin? We're beyond that. Um, we don't have time for that. And so let me show you one more example from Corinth about the consequence of an over-realized eschatology. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, And this is Paul's passage about the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, which that would have been kind of surprising to them as they came together to try to eat the Lord's Supper. Unfortunately, when they came together to eat the Lord's Supper, for when it comes time to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. And someone else goes hungry. And another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you in this matter? I do not commend you. One of the other consequences of it over realized eschatology is not only just the tendency to kind of just do away with sin and act like it doesn't exist and doesn't apply to us, or as we said, to celebrate things that we ought to be mourning. Another consequence is a lack of care and concern, which in this text is not only that, is actually um, an intentional mistreatment and marginalization of the poor in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Their arrogance, their posture of reigning, and you can see how this would happen with an over-realized eschatology. Um, When the poor get in the mix or someone who's suffering gets in the mix, and you have the kind of arrogance that the church in Corinth, that's like a distraction. That's like a major inconvenience. That is a cramp upon the vibe. And so if you are arrogant in the way the church in Corinth is, in the way that maybe we might be tempted to be, um, we want to cast aside the poor. We want to push them away to the margins. And that's exactly what was happening. And so these are a couple of potential uh, consequences of an over-realized eschatology. And again, we could say so much more, but it would be wise for us to think through whether or not there are things that we are celebrating that we ought to be mourning. And it would be wise to run through in our minds our posture toward the poor and the marginalized and to think through how our heart for them might reflect a posture that is arrogant and unhealthy. And Ash Wednesday invites us into that. And so that brings me just to the last part of this uh, text or this message. It's just Paul's letter was meant to be an antidote to overrealized eschatology. And I believe that Ash Wednesday can serve us in the same way. Paul in 1st and 2 Corinthians believe that the, the antidote to an overrealized eschatology was an insistence upon the centrality of the cross in the middle of the not yet. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's also a phrase that some scholars, commentators have used. I don't know. I would cite them if I knew who it was. But the idea that we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. This is where we live. And part of the thing that's going on with the church in Corinth is they're living outside of their time. They're living as if they are beyond the not yet, that if the, as if the kingdom of God has already been fully consummated, as we've said. And Paul's antidote to that mentality is an insistence upon the centrality of the cross in the middle of the not yet, which is where we are, right? We are in the not yet. The kingdom of God has not yet fully come. And so this antidote is important for us as well. It's one of the things that or one of the ways that Ash Wednesday can serve you very well tonight and in the season of Lent is this insistence upon the centrality of the cross in the middle of the not yet. If you remember at the beginning of Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 2, he said, when I was with you, I decided what? To know nothing when I was among you except one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is not in any way, shape, or form a denier of the resurrection. But Paul is insistent that we get the order right and we remember the time in which we live. And in the middle of the not yet, Paul relentlessly insists upon the centrality of the cross. When I was among you, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so tonight with Ash Wednesday, this is not a competition between the crucifixion and the resurrection, but there is something about the time in which we live, and there is something about the order of those things. I made a video, actually my son is standing up right there. Um, This is him, Uh, I made this video, or actually my wife made it for me yesterday, because I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this dynamic, and so I think this is him jumping on our trampoline in the backyard. This is some high-quality video. That's a good-looking dude. Great jumping. I love you, dude. One of the ways that a trampoline can help us understand this dynamic is because height is unsustainable without depth. One of the things that the trampoline can teach us that I believe is also true about the kingdom of God is there is no getting high into the fullness of spiritual blessing and all that without first getting low. If you wanna go high on a trampoline, you first gotta get low. Now, someone who only weighs 60 pounds like Barnabas can't get too, too low. If I were to get on that trampoline, we might be approaching, scraping the ground and then we could really see some heights, right? And we've done that a time or two and there are tears involved when I'm on the trampoline with the kids because inevitably someone gets hurt. I might be the best trampoline buddy that anyone's ever had. So if you want to hit me up for that, we can, we can live out this kingdom reality on the trampoline in my backyard. In the kingdom of God, you cannot get high without going low. That's why Paul insists upon the centrality of the cross in the middle of the not yet. And this is throughout the scripture, but you'll remember when Jesus encountered some disciples on the road to Emmaus he rebuked them because they could not believe that the one who they had their hope in the messiah had been crucified they were devastated and filled with despair and they are walking away from Jerusalem and probably by extension walking away from their faith in the messiah who was just crucified that was an unbelievable reality for them And in this conversation when Jesus appeared to them when they didn't yet recognize him, he actually rebuked them. And you remember why he rebuked them? It's because they didn't understand that you cannot get high without first getting low. And he said, you should have known, right? Didn't you know that the Messiah would first have to suffer and then enter into glory? You might remember in Acts chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas were revisiting some of the churches that they had started in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And it says that they were strengthening the disciples as they revisited them and they were encouraging them and of all the things that they did while they spent time with those disciples, it only tells us one specific thing that they taught them. And it has to do with this reality that there is no getting high without first getting low. It says that they taught the disciples in those churches that it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom. That's why Paul insists upon the centrality of the cross in the middle of the not yet. And so tonight we're going to have an opportunity in just a moment to receive ashes upon our forehead. And it's actually, I should have thought of this. It's kind of funny. I'm literally going to put a cross right in the middle of some of your heads. Talking about the centrality of the cross in the middle of the not yet, is. You might say it's a little bit on the nose, on the head. But we are literally going to put a cross on your head. And part of the reason that we are going to do that is because in the time in which we live, in the middle of the not yet, when everything is not as it will be, every tear is not yet wiped away, the kingdom of God is not yet fully consummated, and we still struggle with sin, and we still suffer, Ash Wednesday comes to us as an insistence of making the cross central in your life to live faithfully in that reality, amen? Amen. And so tonight, I've been praying, maybe you're here in this room and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never accepted his offering of forgiveness of sin. You've never recognized how his work on the cross defeated the powers and principalities and not even just defeated, but he put them to shame so that you could recover your vocation in this world to live and to bear witness to your maker. Tonight, I've prayed that someone would come and receive ashes as a first step of an act of faith in Jesus Christ. Others of you, when we talk about an ongoing dialogue with despair, You're in the middle of suffering that is indescribable. And so you don't need me to talk to you, frankly, about an ongoing dialogue with despair or an attempt to have Easter without Good Friday because you feel like you're in the middle of it right now. And one of the things that these ashes say to us is that there is a God who stands in solidarity with you in your suffering. He suffers with us and for us, and instead of us. And that's one of the things that's being communicated in the imposition of these ashes. And so I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite you to come, if you're willing, and receive these ashes as a, a symbol or a sign of the centrality of the cross in the time in which we live. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend a few minutes serving as a guide or a shepherd into this year's Ash Wednesday. I want to pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, that tonight through song, scripture, the exposition of your word... Someone in this room, maybe many someones, would put their faith in Jesus Christ and receive these ashes as a first step of faith. Others who are suffering, I pray that you would be very near to them in these moments, that you would remind them in this act that you are with them and for them. You will never leave them or forsake them. And indeed, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you will make all things new. I pray for those of us who may be celebrating things that we ought to be mourning over, that this could also be a first step into um, a breaking down of some walls, a giving of some sight to the blind, things that we can't see, things that, that we need to repent of. We need to change our mind. We need to get on your kingdom agenda. So in these moments, would you help us to get low so that we can get high, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.